get ready to jump into what we got for tonight. We're jumping into Romans 9 tonight, so get your Bibles out, turn to Romans 9. we got some work to do. Um, and uh, like Nate said, uh, we're going we're gonna to go do what we call an exposition. We're going to look at what the text says, and we're just going to move through this whole chapter. So if it's your first, first Wednesday with us, we're going to move through this whole chapter uh, of Romans 9. If you don't know about Romans 9... You're about to find out, all right? So um, Romans 9 is what all the pipeline students get super frustrated about. Because uh, when I teach on Romans 9, I give free, to you for free what they pay for. So, um, but it's, it's, it's going to be awesome. We're excited. So let's jump into it. To understand Romans 9, to put Romans 9 in context, the best thing we can do is go to Romans 8 for just a second. And I want you to look uh, in particular at verses 38 and 39, okay? So Paul makes us a promise in Romans 8, 38, 39, that he then gives us legs that Romans 38 and 39 stands on, okay? So that's what happens. Romans 38, 39, we read it last month, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor nothing, no things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. All right, we're going to unpack the legs that that stands on tonight. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for tonight. I thank you for your presence that is here. God, it is your presence and it is your word that changes us. And so, God, I pray that uh, tonight as we unpack your word, as we aim to see what, your, what the Bible says um, that we would not just read it, but we would let it read us to see all the ways in which you're calling us to live differently and honor you more. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, say it with me. Amen. All right. So nothing shall separate us from the love of God, right? So the first question is why? Why should nothing separate us from the love of God? Why is that the case? The next thing we want to ask is, how do we know that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God, right? And then there's two words in that portion of the text that mean the most out of everything he says, and it's the two words, in Christ. So what Paul is saying that when you're in Christ, nothing is going to separate you from the love of God. Now, the question that that we pose, at least initially as we look at it, is, so are we given some sort of security When we're in Christ, is there something about being in Christ that gives us confidence, right? And the the answer that we want to unpack tonight, um, I believe the answer is yes, because the text says so, right? And so let's go to Romans 9. Let's do it. Verse 1, I am speaking the truth. Paul is talking. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I, myself, were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So what Paul does here in the first few verses, is he's helping us understand that he has a desire, if he could, he would let himself be cut off from Jesus. He would let himself, 
essentially go to hell. He would let himself be removed from the glory of God if that meant that the nation of Israel, everyone with Jewish blood, got to experience the glory of God. He's saying, I'm so passionate about my people, right? Because Paul is a Jew. He's saying, I'm so passionate about my people that if I could remove myself and that would give access to everyone else, I would do it. That's, that's how much I want my Jewish brothers and sisters to know Christ and truly know him, right? And he says, because from them is the law, is the covenant, is adoption, through, through them. He's going to unpack that in a second. So he's saying through, through all the, he has a burning desire to see all the Jewish people know Christ. And I think this is interesting Uh, Matthew Henry says, to be insensible to the eternal condition of our fellow creatures is contrary both to the love required by the law and the mercy of the gospel. And what Paul is shining a light on for us, I think, is, is that we should have a desire and a passionate drive to see lost people know Christ. So Paul is even saying, if I could make it to where all of them would know Christ, I would make it to where I don't. If that was a trade I could make, I would. And I think it's so interesting because I think Christians have a hard time just getting over their personality conflict to share Christ. So it's like, you know, how badly do we want people to know Jesus? I love what Raphael said when he was dying. He said, I feel like if Christians experienced death more frequently, they would have a much more burning desire to share the gospel. And so I think that because we're all detached from the reality of death a little bit, because we love life so much, we've forgotten that every person we know and every person we work with is going to spend eternity somewhere. Paul had not forgotten about that, particularly when it came to the people that came from his bloodline. But he says all of these came, the adoption, the belonging, the covenants, the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, it all came from their race according to the flesh. But Paul's going to unpack what we see. And, and in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, you don't have to turn there, but I'm just giving you a brief overview. God gives Abraham a promise. And he says, from your descendants, I'm going to bless the nations of the world. All right. So that's essentially what he says. It's, it's Genesis 12, 1 through 3, if you want to go look it up later. But he says, through you, I'm going to bless the nations. And that's where we pick up in verse 6. It says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So let's unpack that for just a second. Not all who come from Israel, not all who are of the bloodline, not all who are Israelites, not all who are Jews, right? Not all of them that come from Israel are actually part of Israel. See, so God gives a promise to Israel in the Old Testament. So I'm just a little history lesson for you, okay? God gives a a promise to Israel in the Old Testament. And what Paul is shining a light on is the promise to the nation of Israel isn't as much important as the promise that is to the covenant of the people that represent Israel. And so he says, not everyone that is from Israel, right? Not all that descended from Israel belong to Israel. And he goes on to verse 7, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac, your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So to help you unpack that and shine a light on from an from a Old Testament Israel perspective of what Paul is talking about, Abraham finds out through you, we're going to bless the nations. And so Abraham says, brother, I'm old. 
So is my wife, right? And Sarah says, I can't get pregnant. His wife says, I can't get pregnant. He says, so she says, take my servant and have a baby with her. Abraham goes, has a baby with the servant, Hagar, and then and Ishmael is born. So now we have a descendant from Abraham, right? But God looks at that descendant and says, I made the promise to you, but that's not the promise that will be received. And what, what we're seeing Paul unpack for just a second here is if the promise was given to Abraham, I'm going to bless the generations from your descendants, but then Abraham has a descendant and he says, I'm not going to bless the generations through that descendant. That means that not everyone that comes from Abraham is going to be blessed. And everything, we just help you for a second in case you don't know this, everything that happens in the Old Testament is a physical representation of what spiritually is going to happen in the New Testament. So he's looking at him and saying, everyone that is from Abraham isn't going to belong to Abraham. Everyone that's from the bloodline isn't going to be part of the bloodline, right? And he's looking, we're also seeing Paul equate something to say, everyone that's a part of the bloodline isn't going to make it into the eternal place just as much as they're not part of the physical covenant. So let's keep going. He also unpacks this. He says, through Isaac, if you go back and look, he says, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. In other words, he says, even though Ishmael was part of your bloodline, Isaac is actually the one that the covenant rests on. Okay, I'm giving you some history, and then we're going to pick up the part that unpacks more for us. As Paul is walking, again, a realization of Jewish people to disconnect from the heritage and connect to the faith, which is what Paul's doing right here, okay? So if God's promise was for Abraham's offspring and Ishmael was Abraham's offspring, then it must mean that there's a deeper reason beyond genealogy and bloodlines, which takes us to Genesis 21, 12. God said to him, Abraham, do not be distressed about the boy, Ishmael, and your slave woman, Hagar. Listen to whatever Sarah tells you, his wife. All women say amen. If that was your chance, you missed it. Sorry. All right. So, no, I'm just kidding. He says, listen to your, your wife, right? Because it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned okay we go to verse 8 he says one thing in verse 8 that's key that means that it is not the children of the flesh underline children of the flesh it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God but the children of the promise so it's not about lineage it's not about bloodlines it's not about forefathers forefathers and the fathers of the forefathers it's it's about listen to me the promise. And so we asked the question in the beginning, do we have some sort of security? Well, there's a security in belonging. So now we're going to unpack what does it look like to belong because the promise are counted as offspring. So let's pick up at verse 9. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived... Uh, have conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So he's saying, now you've had Isaac, and once Isaac has had children, right? Uh, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad. So Isaac's getting ready to have kids before they were born and had done nothing good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And what God is unpacking, what Paul is helping us unpack here, is that God looked into the lineage, 
and said, there are some that I will love and there are some I will turn from. And hear me. He said, I will make this decision before they ever put feet on earth. So what is Paul unpacking here for us? This idea that when it comes to salvation, and this is the whole point of Romans 9, God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over everything. Now, most of us wouldn't immediately put a wall up against that. We're like, yeah, God's sovereign over it. He's in control over everything. But he's in control. He has destined and set into motion every single thing that will happen on this earth for all of eternity, including who gets saved. And that's the point of tension we're going to talk through a little bit tonight. Because God has destined or pre-established, or we can put those two words and say predestined. It appears by Romans 9, not Brad Livingston, that Paul is saying, I'm going to pick, that God, Paul is saying God refers to say, I'm going to pick some things. Or in some cases, some people. Let's keep going. So before they had done anything good or bad, which means works is not the justification for your salvation. Let's say it again. Works is not the justification for your salvation. Before they had done anything good, God had already sorted it out. So you can't earn your way into this. Because before they had done anything good, God had already sorted it out. So for some of you that you're, you're going to bed at night completely consumed by the grief and the guilt of the fact that you still hadn't got all this figured out just yet before they had done anything good or bad. For those of you that are trying to hit milestones on your scorecard of heaven. Like, you're, you're like man, I got to kill it. I got to be better than everybody. Perfection is obtainable. All of those things. Listen to me. Before you did anything good, God sorted it out. So in all of the attempts to be good and attempts to be godly and attempts to try to earn your way into heaven, God's already figured it out. And on the other side of the coin, in all of your attempts to not be bad, it, like in, your, in the way in which many of your sin consumes your mind because you can't reconcile the fact that you have a thorn even though Paul had one too. So you feel like because you're dealing with something and you will probably deal with it for the rest of your life, you're disqualified. But I'm here to tell you the qualification is in God's sovereign choosing. And if the qualification is in God's sovereign choosing and he chose before you did anything good or bad, what does that mean? It means we have some sort of security. That we rest, listen to me, not on what you do and don't do but on who God is. Now, my goal is not going to be to, to forcibly place a few ideologies on you, but my goal is to expose to you the beauty that is found in the holistic gospel that you cannot earn this thing. And if you can't earn it, it's really not up to you to lose it either. Like God does some sovereign work on our hearts to call us. And that's what we want to look at and continue to unpack. All right, let's go back to it. The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. So the question that arise is, does that sound fair? 
Like, does it seem fair that God would have some sort of selection in who he reveals himself to versus who he does not open their eyes? Does it seem fair? Does it seem just? And Paul answers the question. That's what we're going to pick up in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's the question we have to answer. If I'm being honest, that's the question I wrestle with. I'm like, this doesn't seem fair. I don't know that this seems right. And I love Paul's response. Is this, does this say that there's some injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. For God to pick one and not the other. And I love this part that we unpack when we look at verses 14 through 15. Uh, 14 through uh, 16, it says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So salvation does not depend on human will or exertion. So for all of you that have been spinning your wheels trying to obtain self-righteousness, let it go. Now don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay. Somebody like, wild out, baby. We got it all. So God's figured it out. No, no, no. <laughs> he's, he's called you, right? So, so because he's shown himself to you, he desires something for you and from you. Okay, so let's, let's, let's balance out the, the uh, what's that, teeter-totter, right? So like, let's balance this out a little bit. You know, we just tried to sit a horse on the other side from a toddler for a second. And you're just like, bam, all right, I can do whatever I want. No, 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 no. Calm down, all right? What I'm saying is, is that it is up to God to figure out, figure out who he's going to have mercy and who he's going to have compassion. And I think the biggest two words in that whole passage right there, that whole section, is it says, God says, I will. So who's going to figure all this out? God will. So how am I supposed to love my neighbor because I know God's got it? Yeah, no, God's got it figured out. You don't love your neighbor. Well, if God's, if it sounds like if, if God's got it sorted out between who goes to heaven and who goes to hell, what do I need to do? No, 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 no. you got something to do. Like, give the gospel to lost people, right? Like, the beauty, behind the, the beauty behind this reality isn't that we get to sit on the couch. It should make us go do more. Like, we have brothers and sisters who have yet to see the light, and we have a responsibility to go get them. Right? Like we have a responsibility to go find them. We have a responsibility to go serve them. We have a responsibility to go love them, to introduce them to the Jesus that we know, knowing that, listen to me, the pressure is not on me to get the gospel right. The pressure is on me to get the gospel out. So, the, like, so like, you know, I talk to people all the time. They're like, man, I don't know if I can share the gospel. You know what I mean? They're going to think I'm an idiot. I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm like, they don't know it. You could get it 70% wrong and you're still going to be a genius because they don't know any of it. Right? So like, you're like, Jesus died for your sins. And they're like, oh, when did that happen? And you're like, probably like 400 AD. I don't really, you know, like, they said, if you get all that wrong, it doesn't matter because that's not the part we're clinging to right now. The reality is you've been chasing something your whole life and you've been trying to fill it with everything you can. And I'm telling you that your spouse failed you, your kids failed you, your job failed you. All the things you thought were going to bring you something that was going to fill that hole in your heart. You've tried to fill it and you couldn't fill it. But I'm here to tell you it's a cross shaped whole, that there's only one person that can sit in that spot and his name is Jesus. 
And what you need is not to obtain more, it's to let go of more. And have it removed from you. And the only person that can remove the sin from your life is the only person that could remove the sin from my life. And his name is Jesus. If the person goes, nah, that's not for me. Okay. I'm not heartbroken. It just means their eyes aren't open. Next. Just run an assembly line at your work. You know what I'm saying? Just run them through. You. Your your sin is your problem. I'm just kidding. Sin is your problem. I don't care. Next. No, I'm just kidding. So don't. Don't do that. So what shall we say then? Going back to verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. It says, I will have mercy on who I will have mercy. God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. But God, why do you have mercy on that person? You'll never get the answer. Why didn't you have compassion? How come that person couldn't get saved? Listen to me. It's not for you to figure out. I'm reserving things for Pipeline. I can't give everything away to you guys. All right, fine. So <laughs> those are Pipeline students that said yes. So the, the, the reality is, for, for how many of us does that seem unfair? Just be honest for a second. It seems unfair. So what do we want it to be? Fair. So let me give you what fair looks like. Are you ready? We all burn. There's only two ways this works out. Because sin is in each one of us. Look at the person next to you. Come on, look at, go ahead and look at them. They got sin. All right? Now look at the person on the other side of you. Them too. All right? The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. So all, we all have sin, right? So there's two alternatives here. Either, either we all burn or God goes out of his way to rescue those whom he, are his. Those are the only two options. So, from my perspective, I'm so glad it's not fair. I'm so glad it's not. Like, listen, I'm going to do my best to reach every lost person. I don't relish in the fact that people are going to go to hell. I'm just so glad God chose me to go to heaven. Like, and I, and I rejoice in that. And it stirs my emotions. And it brings me to a place of awe and wonder. And, and there's no reason my name should be on that list different than someone else's name is on that list other than God put it there. And so it should stir in us a desire. Listen, man, shame on us for allowing the pursuit of perfection to overshadow the beauty of Christ's election. Shame on us for being so consumed by what we're not, we fail to see what God sees that we are but that our eyes would be open and that we would be enlightened to the actual gospel that Jesus died to save sinners, of whom I'm the worst, but he still went after us. And I believe Paul was so passionate about this because it happened to him. Saul is on the road to Damascus. For those of you that this is brand new, Paul's name was Saul. He was killing Christians. And on the road to Damascus to go kill and persecute more of them, God knocked him off a horse and blinded him for three days. There wasn't a Holy Ghost praise break on Damascus Road. <laughs> they didn't have like Jamel up there like playing keys. Like, oh. 
right? Like, and someone was like, oh, man, this is really a beautiful moment right now. Like, I think, I think I'll have God. Like, that, those th- that didn't happen, right? He was on his way to persecute what in one moment God helped him become. So I believe Paul is passionate about this because he knows he wasn't like, man, I think, you know, life's just been hard lately, and I think I just need Jesus. And if you pause for just a second, and maybe you did make a decision in a church service, and maybe there was a piano player, and maybe all those things are very real. I'm not robbing you from your experience. You know what I mean? What I'm saying is the work that was done for you to be saved was done before that moment. That was just the completion of it. Right? So we pick up at verse 16. So that depends not on human will or exertion. We just read that, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. So, so what we're going to unpack here in verse uh, 17 is uh, this idea. Uh, or he gives us a window in to why people exist even if they won't be saved. So that's where we go in verse 17. All right. So he says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Again, Paul's referencing something that Jewish people would know very well, which is the story of Pharaoh. So what happens? Many of you know the story. Pharaoh has the Israelites in slavery in Egypt and Moses goes to him. God sends Moses, let my people go. And the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what is, what is happening when God hardens his heart? He's making it to where to redeem God's people, he has to let some other people be destroyed. And so what are we unpacking here? Depends not on, or sorry, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, for this very purpose, I have raised you up. For this very purpose, I have put you in your position. For this very purpose, I have allowed you to be risen to the top where you would be ruling over the Israelites. For this very purpose, what very purpose that I would destroy you? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he has mercy, hardens whomever he wills. So let's go to verse 19. So will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right? So we pick up in 19. So who can resist the will of God? So the, the question that Paul is giving them, he's giving them space to say, so if that, all that is true and God really does do all this work, who does he still find fault in if he's only called some? Right? And I love Paul's response because it's so clarifying. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? <laughs> Paul looks at him and is like, those are answers that are out of your pay grade. Right? And, and, it, and it brings us back to Job 38. Right? Where Job gets, what, 33 chapters of questioning God with his friends? <laughs> right? And God shows up in chapter 38. He was like, where were you when I formed the earth? Dress yourself like a man. I'll let you ask me questions. Which is funny now, but could you, could you imagine? I mean, 
I mean, like I was just, you know, I knew you had it, right? Like, so, 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 can we still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? And I love what Paul says here. He says, well, what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. If you can't read that part of Romans 9 and get the truth of what we're talking about tonight, then I just don't know what part you're reading. Maybe you got one of those like ASVSBs or something. I don't know what you got. Has... Let us go back to verse 21. Has the potter no right over the clay? God is our maker. God is our molder. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump of coal? In other words, out of the same flesh. We are all humans. Out of the same lump of clay. Does he not have the right to make one vessel for honorable use? One vessel that will experience his glory. One vessel that would be able to accomplish all the things. And one for dishonorable use that will be broken and that will burn and that will be thrown aside. What if God, desiring to make his wrath, to show his wrath and to make known his power. So, so when we look at to, to, to show his wrath, make known his power. And I think that one of the best ways we can understand this is like, how many guys, I'm trying to think of someone, like Kim Kardashian. We'll use her for an example. Love that, right? People are like, oh, where is, this took a turn. So uh, I, I don't know that Kim Kardashian has ever really slummed it very well. Would we all agree? Like probably on her worst day, she's outshining all of us. You know what I'm talking about? Like, so like, I don't see, I remember camping with my dad when we were younger and you had to like cut open a can of beans with a pocket knife. Y'all know what I'm talking about? And you like heat it over a fire and it's like, ooh, tasty, right? Because we're supposed to eat, like we're supposed to eat ridiculously because we're camping like we couldn't have packed a sandwich or some spaghettios like what is it that we just have to eat beans right so all that to say is like but we've been there many of you guys know what I'm talking about listen some of y'all you've lived on a budget before too right like y'all know we can make ramen 31 different ways in my house you know because it's we've we've been in them places before and I love ramen so I'm not into tripping but whatever so like but I don't think if I had to be honest Kim could truly, and this isn't the bash on Kim, what I'm, what I'm, I mean, not that, never mind. So what I was getting at is I don't know that Kim could truly understand how good her life is because she's never seen the alternative before. So because she's never had to experience the gripping reality of what it would be like to not have her money, she can't truly appreciate her money. So when you look at someone Right, like uh, Pastor Dan, uh, me and him saw somebody one time uh, as we were walking through a casino, and we saw someone. Uh, he saw someone at a blackjack table, and I think they lost hundred thousand dollars, like within like ten minutes or something. Right, something crazy. I don't know, something like that. Very quickly, more faster than you should lose hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> right, lost hundred thousand dollars, and the guy was just like, ah, whatever, and he came back the next day. 
And the guy at the casino told Patrick, he's like, yeah, his dad's rich, and he just has a tab, he just runs it up here, and whatever. And it's like, man, could I just rob that guy one time? You know what I mean? Like, we'll edit that part out. Uh, that was just a joke, by the way. So for anyone that's listening, we're not, no, sorry. Okay, so, but all that to say is like, do I believe that, like, it, it's obvious that this man doesn't have to take seriously what it would be like to lose everything. And what I believe is God is communicating to us through this portion of Romans 9 when he's, when he's talking about his wrath to make known his power is there has to be an alternative to being selected and going to heaven for us to truly understand the beauty behind it. If no one goes to hell, can we truly get a grasp on the glory of heaven? There has to be contrast. If you've only ever eaten filet mignon all your life, you don't know what it is to only have a bologna sandwich. Right? Now, that is a very easy and diluted analogy for this. Especially because I don't eat bologna sandwiches. I'm just not doing it. God's been too good to me to eat a bologna sandwich. That just is what it is. So the fact that you can see bologna and hams right next to it, and you're like, blows my mind. I just can't do it. All right. All right, we're back. All right, so what if God, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured? And this is the part that I, I think is so interesting, has endured with much patience. What has he endured with much patience? Vessels of wrath. So in other words, it is in his patience that he has endured the process of having vessels of wrath that he could have very easily just poured his wrath out on. But he endured the vessels of wrath with patience. He, he experienced the heartache. He watched them sin. He watched them Right, profane his name. He what? And with patience, he endured these vessels of wrath. Right. And what did he do it for? Right. Because they were they were prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for you. He endured with patience all of what all the world that's profaning his name right now. All of the world that is cursing him, running from him putting the middle fingers in the air to him, right? He's enduring with much patience what is happening there so that the vessels of mercy, me and you, would experience the fullness of his glory. And so he comes in to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, also which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So what do we get? Go back to verse 22 for a second. I know this is like we're kind of moving around a little bit tonight, but I, this is, you just have to do this with Romans 9. Verse 22, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath? What are the next words? Prepared for destruction. So he prepared them knowing the outcome so that he could make known the riches of his glory for the parents of mercy, which he also did what? prepared beforehand for glory. So God is in control of this whole thing. Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, 
but also from the Gentiles. And so there's a huge doctrinal push out there that the idea that God would have some sort, and I'm not, again, I'm, I'm not trying to indoctrinate, I'm just trying to introduce the reality of God's sovereignty in salvation to you for a second. But there are some out there that would say, well, the idea of God's sovereignty for election is only for Jews. Well, we know that the physical representation of the Old Testament is the spiritual representation in the New. We know that to be true. And we also know, according to verse 24, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. In other words, we're not talking about a reserved election for the Jewish heritage and the Israelites of the Old Testament. He's talking about an effectual calling that is salvific, that is part of salvation, that's not just for the Jews, it is also for the Gentiles. Verse 25, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left, left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. And, and in this portion right here, verse 29, what, what he's saying in verse 29 is, it says, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring. And the term left us offspring, what that means is if the, if the Lord of hosts, if God himself had not withheld right, wrath from, if he had not withheld wrath from some of our offspring, none of us would have got it. We would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then and it goes a step further. To, so when he's talking about left us offspring, he's withheld wrath, but he didn't just withhold wrath, he also extended mercy. So God withheld wrath from some of them that still deserved wrath and extended mercy to them even though they deserved wrath. And because of that, there is a remnant that still gets to exist because it wasn't because they were good enough. It was because God said for it to happen. And so we continue to walk, right, in this idea that God's sovereignly making salvation happen. And he's, he's extending mercy and withholding wrath from some so that there's a remnant that would be protected. We go to verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. So let's go back, read it again. What is it? Verse 30 starts with a question. What should we say then? The answer is that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. So he's answering the question. The Gentiles who did not follow the law. So Gentiles being us, right? We did not follow the law. Anybody broke any of God's laws lately? Okay, so for us, we, didn't, we did not follow the law. For the Gentiles who did not follow the law, what does he say, right? They did not pursue righteousness. Have they attained righteousness? So that's the question Paul is asking. So the Gentiles that did not pursue righteousness, have they attained righteousness? And he answers it. He says they have attained it. 
but it's a righteousness that is by faith. In other words, it's not in what you've done, it's in resting on what Christ already did. So it's a faith in Jesus that when Jesus did it, he did it and he completed it for us, right? But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reading that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. And then he references the prophet. He says, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. So Paul references this Old Testament passage. And he's essentially saying that when God says that he's laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, what he's saying is, I am placing something in the Old Testament. I am placing something around the I am placing the idea that if you could follow the law, you could get to the ultimate promised land. He said, I'm putting in Zion, I'm putting a stumbling stone in front of the people that are trying to follow the law to show them you can't follow the law. And he goes on to say, so there's a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So I put this thing out there so that the people of the law will see, and they'll, they're going to stumble over it. There's something sitting the, the law is a stumbling block because they think that if you, can, if you can accomplish the law, if you can fulfill the law, you're good enough to get in. But he's saying that, that is the thing that they're going to trip over. And maybe in your life you've tripped over or trying to fulfill the law rather than resting in faith. Maybe the very stumbling block that the Jews are tripping over are the, is the same stumbling block you're tripping over. And that's why you keep finding yourself on your face every day. Feeling like a failure. Feeling like you can't do it. Feeling like you're not good enough. Because you keep stumbling over the same thing that they're stumbling. And the solution to it is the second half. Whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in him, whoever roots their Christianity, not in what they can do, but in what Christ has already done, they won't be put to shame. He's already fulfilled in, in. So we see that God has a desire to help us understand that we have an eternal security and a faith that, listen to me, your salvation wasn't your idea. Everywhere in the Bible, we see that it's a gift. And, and maybe you just had a jacked up version of gift giving, but everything we know about God is that God doesn't give conditional gifts. He says it's a, it's a gift. And so <clears throat> I just want to encourage you tonight for all of you that have been trying to do enough good and neglect enough bad to get in, you're stumbling over the stumbling block. You are tripping over the stone. And it's not, for, for us in this room, I don't believe that it's, it's the stone that you're tripping over that's going to lead to an eternal problem. I just think it's going to lead to a very frustrating earthly one. It's like, man, I got to be good enough. I got to be good enough. I got to be good enough. And listen, I don't think there's anything wrong with desiring righteousness. I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to act, feel, and think godly. What I'm saying is there's nothing, there's no boxes you can check that give you a shoe in. 
There's not enough good things you can do that get you righteousness so that you could go to heaven. None of those things. Matter of fact, what we at least are compelled to think about is that perhaps salvation hinges so little on you and so much on God. And if that is true, what could happen if we started worshiping God completely out of our assurance and our confidence in our faith, not our pursuit of perfection? Neglect your works-based righteousness. Absorb the grace that has been given to you. Listen to me, we're about to wrap up. I want you to immerse yourself. Be consumed by the grace that has been given to you from God Almighty. Let's stand to our feet tonight. I want to I want you just close your eyes. We're going to take a few minutes to spend in reflection like we do each Wednesday. But I want you to just to listen. I want you to listen to what I say. I want you to let your heart be captivated by it. And I pray that it does something special in you, particularly those who you've either consciously or subconsciously been pursuing after a works-based faith. You've either consciously or subconsciously been trying to earn your way in. You have not made your salvation about Christ. You've made it about doing good things. And good people don't go to heaven. God's people go to heaven. And God's people are the ones whose faith is placed in what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And the people that place their faith in what Jesus accomplished on the cross to pay for their sins, to remove the guilt, to remove the filth, those people who had their eyes open to the reality of God. And if that is you, if you have had your eyes opened, listen to me, absorb the grace given to you. Be submerged in it. Be completely consumed by it. I want to encourage you to wonder at it. Look into the beauty of it. Marvel in it. Let it stir affection in you. Let it awe you. Not that you somehow ended up here, but by a choice of God himself, you are here. Let it provoke an emotion in you that God has set out to rescue you from an eternity in hell. And it wasn't because of you, it was just because he chose. And so we're gonna take the next seven or eight minutes and we're just going to reflect. So I encourage you, you can move around. You can, you can come down the altar if you want. You can bow down. You can go stand against the wall, whatever. But I, wanna, I want you to let this gripping reality of God's grace and his sovereignty 
and you not somehow ending up here because of an accident, but you purposefully ending up here because God placed you here. And then I want you to let that turn into words that you will thank him with. God, thank you. Thank you so much. You didn't have to, but you did. And where I've tried to replace your grace with my works, forgive me and help me see that it's never been up to me and it's never going to be up to me. Strictly because of your mercy.